Father, thank you so much for the joy and the gift of salvation. Thank you so much, Lord, for your word that you've given it to us to study and to learn about you, to know what you're like and how to live with you. We thank you, Lord, that your word is powerful. It can touch the hearts of anybody in any language anywhere. And we thank you for the baptisms this morning, Lord, as evidence of the power of your work in the lives of people. And as we pray, Jesus, and we ask that you guide our time in Jeremiah this morning, that you'd be glorified and center stage, Lord, in all that we do and think. Amen. Did you know that our God is a joyful God? Back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, we read, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God expressed joy over what he'd made. From the very beginning, there was joy. Joy over all creation, joy in the special creation of people, a people for himself, a people that would know and experience contentment, fullness and joy in their Lord. Now, if you continue in Genesis, I can picture what God felt, his pleasure, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. He finished making all the animals, all the birds, all creation, and he took the animals and the birds and he brought them to Adam. And he said, Adam, I want you to name them. Whatever you call them, that will be their name. I can imagine God watching what Adam decided. Well, this is a, this is a pigeon. This is a blue jay. This would be called a cow. If you've ever given a gift to somebody, if you think you found that perfect gift, you've wrapped it up, and you're all excited to give that to somebody, and you watch them open that, and they have joy over what you've given them, how do you feel? You have joy as well. Perhaps even more joy. I think God felt joy at bringing to Adam what he'd made, and Adam was allowed to name it. It's God's desire that people would share in his pleasure, both in the created world and also in our close fellowship with him. But as we know, soon after, in Genesis 3, humankind sought to break away from him and seek pathways that led to a divorce from his presence. Humanity, our world today, sadly continues to pursue their own independent way, turning away from the only one who can restore the joy and the hope, the spirit and the life. And yet, God's word from Genesis 3 right to the end of Revelation, vast majority of the Bible except for two, verse, two chapters, is a record of God's perfect plan to build a new and lasting relationship with each of us. Yahweh's joy is always on the horizon, calling us to look up and to come to him. Now, as we, pro- pro- as we progress through the Advent season, and we're anticipating in a few weeks the celebration of God's Messiah, the birth of God's Messiah, we're looking back on this third Advent Sunday to a time in the life of Israel where peace, hope, and joy had evaporated. All that was left was a residue of despair, fear, and destruction. Despite warnings, the rumblings of imminent judgments, 
the horrors of war and exile, the prophet Jeremiah, his dire message, only re-emphasized throughout most of the book the consequences of turning away from the God of the covenant. The covenant, according to Christopher Wright, was now shattered. It was broken. It's beyond repair due to people's persistent rejection and refusal to listen and obey to God. The people at the time must have thought, you know, is there any future for Israel without the God of the covenant? He's abandoned us. We are in exile. Is there no way back to God? Had we finally gone so far that God said, that's it, you want to leave? I'm going to let you leave. Now some of us here this morning may feel that way. We may feel that, you know, where's God? There's no joy in my life. What happened to him? Once I was close and now I'm not. Where did he go? Where did I go? Well, Jeremiah does indeed give words of judgment for the people. But he also gives words of joy, of a future restoration. The entire book of Jeremiah, in the middle, not quite the middle, but near the middle end, in chapters 30 to 33, he breaks out in a song of joy over God's plans to restore his people. And it's in chapter 31 where we see Jeremiah proclaim the arrival of something new. Something new is about to happen. A time of forgiveness, healing, and renewal, all wrapped up in this package called the New Covenant. We're only spending time in a few verses of Jeremiah chapter 31. But if I were to outline Jeremiah chapter 31 for you, I'd outline it in this way. In the first 30 verses, God has Jeremiah pronounce a time of of restoration. The Lord is announcing, I'm going to do this. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to restore you. And then in verses 31 to 34, he tells of the process of restoration. How am I going to do this? How is God going to restore? How is God going to bring back his people? How is God going to bring us to him? And the last part is the promise. Verses 34 to 40. Where the Lord offers a certainty. It will happen. It's a guarantee. You have my word on it. Because people could say, well, we have a covenant now. You know, look what happened. Maybe it'll change in the future. God says, no. This is new. This is final. So in verses 31 to 34, it's basically about this. Yahweh, the Lord, is the one who makes a covenant, a new covenant, with his people. A very simple statement, but very deep and complex. So let's turn to Jeremiah 31, verse 31, as we begin with looking at Yahweh, the author of joy. The text reads this, and I would, because of uh, the way that this is kind of rushed together, I'd advise you to open your Bibles as well as looking on the screen because I'll be bouncing back and forth from verses. In verse 31 it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I want you to notice a few things. If you were to read verses 31 to 34 in your entirety, I want you to notice a few things. The first thing is that joy is something that God provides. 
If you seek after joy and pleasure, you won't find it. It disappears as soon as you have it like a snowflake in your hand. It's gone. Joy is a byproduct of what God does for us. But in these four verses, ten times God uses the word I. He says, I will make a covenant. I made a covenant in the past with your fathers. I took them by the hand. I was their husband. I will put my law in their hearts. I will be their God. I will remember their sin no more. This is all about God. Not the people. This is what God is doing. This is His choice. His purpose. And to emphasize this one step more, God says three times, My. This is my covenant with you. This is my law I'm putting in your hearts. You become my people. And if that's not enough, he says three times, declares the Lord. In each of the sections, he says, this is something that the Lord declares. Now, if you can think back to when you were a child, and if you were in trouble, and your mother or father called your name, that was one thing. If they called it twice, well, I should pay attention. Three times, there's some trouble coming your way. God says this three times. I'm declaring this is going to happen. This will happen. I declare it. I declare it. Listen to what I'm saying. Remember the context here. The people are in trouble. God is far away. The enemy is on the horizon. Exile is happening. Death and destruction is all around you. There is no hope. There is no joy. There is nothing except, can I survive? And God says, you know, a day will come when this will be gone. And I'll restore you to myself. And that's the second thing I want you to observe in these verses. The idea of restoration. For some reason, yesterday I just had a lot of words in my mind that started with P. For some reason. Restoration is God's plan. He always initiates covenant. He's the one who comes to you. He's the one who invites you. He's the one who searches for you because it's his plan. God pursues restoration. He seeks after covenant. Despite the people turning away from him, he still pursued them to draw them back. Restoration is God's possession. He is at the center of it all. He's the center of the covenant. It's all about him. He is the one who brings into reality a lasting, eternal restoration. It depends on him. It's God's provision. If you notice in the verse, it says that I will make a new covenant. The word make is literally the cut. I'm going to cut. That takes you back to the covenant God made when he took an animal, he cut it in half, he walked through the center of the animal, and that was a demonstration that this cannot be put back together again. What is done is final. The covenant is made. He cuts a new covenant. When we get to the New Testament, you'll see how cut actually does fit with the Messiah. And finally, God's people. He uses the words, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Why does he use those words? I think in in part because of the second exile. First went the house of Israel, second went the house of Judah. And God says, I'm going to bring you back, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
and I'll make you one again with me and with each other. So as we come to the new covenant that Yahweh has planned, we have to ask ourselves some questions about the new covenant in verses 32 and 33. Now, as followers of Christ, we must resist the temptation to run to the New Testament and say, ah, I know about new covenant. New covenant means this. We're not going to get there yet because this is the only place in the Old Testament that the word new covenant appears as words new covenant. Words that were picked up and repeated in the the New Testament. There's other places that allude to this in the Old Testament, like in Ezekiel, but here the words new covenant are startling because they're isolated. It's the only time that God mentions this in such a direct way. And so we come to the actual two verses here. The new covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So this new covenant, what does it look like? Well, the first thing that God tells us is that it's not like the old covenant. What is the former covenant? It was made in the Mount Sinai, Exodus 19.24. God gave the Ten Commandments. He gave a whole series of rules and regulations in which to approach him. Blood sacrifice. His word written. Torah rules and sacrificial system. Which connects back to Abraham. The covenant God made with Abraham is a continuation and a fulfillment within the first covenant. Now Thompson writes this about the, the old covenant. The continued existence of the covenant depended on the continuing recognition of Yahweh as Lord. So you must remember the the Lord your God. And the continuing obedience to the terms of the covenant. You must fulfill what the covenant asks and requires of you. Failure to obey these laws result in judgment. That's the first covenant. And alas, as you see through all the scripture, this covenant was repeatedly broken by the people of Israel. Israel's history is filled with persistent failure to live according to the covenant. In fact, people, including us, were incapable and are incapable of such obedience. Keeping God's laws is impossible. can't be done because God is perfect and we're not. The new covenant, however, was needed. Something brand new was going to be brought into existence because the former covenant was broken despite God taking the people by the hand. You think of a, of a wayward child. I'm taking you by the hand. We're leaving the land of Egypt. Come on, follow me. Cross this sea. Go into the land. Over the course of all those decades and hundreds of years, the people rebelled repeatedly. They'd become like an unfaithful wife to the husband. The Lord says, I was your husband. I was faithful to you. And you kept leaving me. And one day I let you go. So what are the characteristics of this new covenant? What what does it look like? Well, the new covenant has some interesting characteristics. It's like the old in many ways. 
but in some new elements that God himself begins. The new covenant does not abolish the old, but rather it supersedes it. The new covenant supersedes the old covenant. The new covenant fulfills the old and achieves what God had intended in relation with his people. So what makes this covenant different than the previous one? Why is it needed? What was wrong with the first one? Well, the first one was written on books, on stone. You read it, you heard it, and you tried to keep what God had said. But now God says something different. He says, I'm going to put within you my law. God proposes to change the nature of people, making them capable of obedience. It's not in the book. It's not in stones. It's not to be heard. It's to be inside. It's written on the heart. God says, I will write my law on their hearts. The idea of heart is not what you feel. That's uh, our today's concept. You know, I heart you. You know, um, That's not today. That, that's today's concept. But back in the time of Israel, the heart was where the mind and will existed. For today we'd say, I will write my law on your mind, on your will. That's what's going to be. The law of the Torah was written on their hearts, which is saying it's on their minds and will. Now, a few chapters before, in Jeremiah 17, God says this to the people. Sin is written and engraved in their hearts. It's our nature to sin. It's our nature to rebel. It's our nature to defy. If you want someone to to, to disobey, tell them to do something. Can you do this for me? I don't want to do that. So as soon as you hear the the word of God's law, there's a, a welling up within you in our sin nature that says, well, I'll do it if I want to. If I don't want to do it, I won't do it. I'll go my own way. I know best. The, new, the, the law of the new covenant requires a new human nature where God's will effectively governs people's lives in contrast to simply reading God's law and trying to keep it. People couldn't keep it. So God says something new will happen. I'm going to take my law, my will, my word, and I'm going to infuse it in your very nature. God's desire will, and will become the inner principle that enables people to delight and have joy in doing God's will. The last characteristic of the new covenant is that God says this, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Longman points out that this is a, a phrase that is like a covenant formula. It's used in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. I'll read it to you. See if you can hear the covenant formula. God says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession, for I am the Lord. That's the first covenant. God says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. That continues into the new covenant. 
but it's fulfilled in a permanent and completely different way. Yahweh makes a new covenant with his people. So what about the people in the last verse? And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So he's saying declares the Lord for the third time here. He's really getting your attention. There are certain blessings that come with this new covenant. As this verse continues, for I will forgive their iniquity and I remember their sin is no more. So the blessings of the covenant are you will know God. What does that mean? It doesn't mean you're going to know about God. There are lots of people in the world who know a lot about, about the scriptures. They study the Bible, they know it. But they have no relationship with God. They don't know him. The idea here is an experience, a relationship. You will know me. No one's going to have to stand between God and you. There's no longer any intermediator. There's no Moses. There's no priests. There's no prophets. There's no teachers who are going to bring you to know God. God does this himself. And once it's done, you know him. You experience him. God and people will share intimate fellowship personally and corporately as together people who know the Lord worship him together and know him together and experience him together. Under the new covenant, all will know God. And this new covenant is also for everybody. It's inclusive. He says it's available from the least to the greatest, from the poorest to the richest, from the young to the old. My new covenant is for all. The initial context here is Israel. But as we know, God extends that far beyond to include all people. It's also total forgiveness. Christopher Wright again is helpful. He says the sin and guilt of the past will be forgiven and remembered no more. When God remembers, it means he will act. If he chooses not to remember, there is no reason for any further action to be taken. Case dismissed. It's finished. Despite how you may feel. Remember their sin no more is the final thing he says before he goes and tells them how certain this will be that it will happen. This is an everlasting, permanent, certain, eternal, never-ending and never-failing covenant because it's God who sets it up and does it. But you may ask, you say, well, okay, I'm following so far, I think, but uh, how does God do this? Does he just say, okay, I'm going to wipe the plate clean, there's no, uh, there's no there's just forgiveness, there's no accountability, there's no justice, no judgment? How does it work? How does God actually bring about the new covenant? And that's where we come into the New Testament. Why we're here this morning. Why we have Advent. Why we're counting down the Sundays to a celebration of the birth of the Messiah. Because the angel said to Joseph when he questioned about Mary, he said, She shall bear a son and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came into the world to become the new covenant. When I thought about this, I thought actually Jesus himself is the new covenant. The new covenant is a person, not a thing, not a book, not an idea. It's a person. 
The covenant is through him and in him and with him. As he aligns us and brings us into relationship with the Father, he is the eternal mediator. The covenant is made. In Hebrews chapter 8 and chapters 10, these words of Jeremiah are repeated. In fact, word for word, a direct quote, a full quote of an Old Testament passage. But listen to these words in Hebrews 8, 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for another. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, and I'll establish a new covenant. And he quotes the entire Jeremiah passage as pointing to Jesus. Then he finishes in verse 13 of that chapter 8 by saying, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And again, the writer of Hebrews returns to Jeremiah in the very next chapter, chapter 10. And he says in verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, waiting from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness for us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them in their minds. And then adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The covenant is made. It's done. It's available. And it's fulfilled, as was mentioned in the lighting of the candles, was Christ's second coming. The return of the Messiah, which we're anticipating. And the way things are going in the world, who knows? It's one day closer than it was yesterday. All one has to see is Revelation 5 to know the joy that we will share together on that day when Christ is revealed in his full splendor and glory. So Yahweh makes a covenant, a new covenant, with his people. So where does that leave us? Where are we? Well, the first thing is becoming a new covenant person. Becoming a new new covenant people. How does that work? How does that happen? It's a recognition of God's existence. God is real. That small voice that I have that says God is true, it's true. There's conviction from him. And that we have failed and rebelled against him repeatedly in our lives. Becoming a covenant person involves repentance. It's confessing to God and turning away from those things that you know you've done and said that violate your conscience before God and his law and and his will. It's a surrendering. So you're, okay, I see a problem. You're right, that's a problem. I'm going to turn now and face you. I'm now surrendering myself to you, Jesus. I'm giving my life to you because you are the new covenant. If I want a covenant with God, I have to have you. You're the one who has forgiven me because you took my penalty upon yourself and you died. And when you died, it died with you. God will not remember your sins anymore because they died with Jesus on the cross. And then begins the relationship that God will write his laws on your heart 
and he chooses to adopt you as his child. And you can be sure that's forever. There are times you may feel, you know, I don't know, things are not going great in my life. God is faithful, consistent, and doesn't change. The people who were baptized this morning, we don't know what life's going to have for them in the coming years or weeks or decades. We all face challenges, but God is faithful to us. And so living as New Covenant people, our last thing, they shall know me. How do we experience God? Well, we experience God through worship, personally, corporately. We worship God in spirit and in truth. Living as New Covenant people means following God, obeying Him, serving Him. The last thing is actually serving. Loving God through serving Him by loving others, as He taught us to do. Doing those things, living in those ways, is how we know and experience God on a daily basis. Now, I've said a lot. I have a voice sometimes that kind of, you know, if I had a recording, you can go to sleep at night. It's true. That's the way God made my voice. So I want to leave you with a way to remember this, okay? A simple way to remember what I just said. You ready for it? Okay. So Yahweh Green makes the new covenant yellow with his people red. Okay, what does it look like in, 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 in the New Testament? Jesus has overcome sin and death for you. So, joy. Jesus overcomes for you. So when you walk away, if somebody says, how was your Sunday? Oh, I went to church. Saw some baptisms, heard a message. What did they say? I don't know, something about joy. Um, Jesus uh, overcomes um, stuff for you. Something like that. There, you got a message to tell somebody on Monday. Or if you're waiting in the lineup to buy, gro- buy gifts and it's going too slow, you can say, you know, I have joy, I have Jesus, he's overcome and he's done it for me. You know? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are our joy. Thank you that you're the one who has come to be our new covenant. That in you we have life. And Jesus, I pray that if anybody's here this morning who is not in a relationship with you, who is still thinking, trying to figure things out, I pray that you bring them conviction and that you would speak to their hearts of the truth of who you are and all that you offer. For life is only in you and in no others. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.